So uh, last week we were in Jonah 1, and uh, Jonah had gotten the call to Nineveh. He ran, fled the opposite direction uh, to, uh, to Tarshish, and ends up in the belly of a whale. And uh, so this chapter in Jonah is his prayer, <clears throat> for or large fish, whale, however we're going to read it. Um, so this is his prayer from the, from the large fish. We're in Jonah, not Joel. Jonah, chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me, weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up, my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pray. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. The word of the Lord. Holy Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your work with your people. I pray that you would anoint our souls and our ears to be fed by you and to receive uh, what you have for us. Guard my speech from error and uh, confusion. In Jesus' name, amen. If you are walking around with a cup full of wine and somebody bumps into you, will vinegar come out of the cup? It's not a trick question. No. Wine will come out of the cup. If you're walking around with a cup of vinegar and someone bumps into you, what's going to come out of the cup? Not wine, vinegar, right? So whatever you're full of, right, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so when we're in moments of extreme distress or pressure, right, when you're put in pressure cookers in different situations and you lash out in bitterness or you speak out in wrath, that's actually the most honest you're being. Because all of a sudden all the subtleties and niceties have been stripped away and you're in a position where you're you're desperate and panicked, and the stuff that comes out of your mouths in those situations is the thing you mean the most, actually. So you can't say, oh, I didn't mean that. I'm sorry. I take it back. And you ask for forgiveness because it was actually busted because you have, you're feeding on something in you that is vinegar. Right? You're not full of wine. You're full of vinegar. You don't have sweetness. You don't have peace or shalom. You have sourness and wrath. And so what, what we see here is Jonah's put in the fish. Jonah's put in the pressure cooker of the fish. Jonah's approaching death. And what comes out of Jonah is actually the word of God. Right? This, this, uh, this prayer that Jonah prays has over 20 different references and quotations from the Psalter. So Jonah's prayer is saturated with the word of God. So when Jonah's put in distress, when Jonah's even disobedient, hardened Jonah, when he's put into the situation, what comes out of Jonah is faithful prayerfulness. 
God's speech, promises from the Almighty on how his people ought to call out to him in times of need, in times of distress. Right, just a, a few of these. Psalm 18 is heavily quoted in Jonah. Uh, first few verses of Psalm 18, verses 3 through 6. I call upon, and these are uh, amalgamated, right? So it's not necessarily direct citation, but you have this. He takes parts of these psalms and stitches them together into a united prayer here. So this is uh, Psalm 18, verses 3 through 6. And so we'll try to listen for these as we go through the passage again. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help from his temple. He heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. And we have Psalm 31, verse 6. I hate those who pay regards to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. And we have Psalm 116. Uh, verses 3 through 4. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of shield laid hold on me. I suffered distress in my anguish. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. And verse, 30, verse 18 from 116. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. And you'll notice this too if you spend time in the Psalms is that there's a bunch of Psalms that cross-reference each other. And and kind of riff on similar themes, right? There's, if, depending on how you break it up, there's kind of like seven types of psalms. And so there's all kinds of repetition, all kinds of different rephrasings of similar ideas that are fitted for different circumstances. And so Jonah is kind of pulling all the death psalms, all the stuff about being brought down into Sheol, being brought down away from the land of the living. All those kinds of psalms are being stitched together here to be like, God, I'm dying God, I'm going down into the pit. I'm being surrounded by my enemies, and I need help. Right? And then it, it resolves with him being lifted up, being resurrected, brought out. And so what, we, what we're seeing here is that Jonah's dying prayerfully is what leads to his resurrection. Right? That he, he dies prayerfully, and this leads into his resurrection out of the fish. So verses 1 through 3. Then Jonah prayed from the, to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. And the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. So Jonah is either dying, or he's near death, or he is dead. He's approaching Sheol, the, the place of the dead. Uh, it's not unreasonable to think that the Greeks get their idea of Hades from the Hebrew conception of Sheol. That it's this ghost town, right? It's, it's not hell. It's not the place of torment. But it is a place that's disconnected from the land of the living. It's where shades go. It's where the shadow lands are, the hinterlands, the outer parts, the, the heart of the earth. And the Jewish hope was not in heaven. The Jewish hope is in resurrection, is in more embodiment, heavier stuff, glorified stuff, gold-plated houses, feasts, wine, good bread, good meat. That's, that's the hope, right? That's, that's what we confess in our historic creeds, that our hope is in the resurrection. We believe in the resurrection and the world to come. 
And so for Jonah, it's not, it's not just that he's dying, it's that he's being taken, he's, he's moving further away from what Jew, the Jewish mind would hope in. Fullness of life, abundance in life, glory, joy, gladness, people, humanity, creation, the good stuff God made. He's being taken off the good earth which God has given us. And so he's crying out. He says, Lord, I'm, I'm sinking down. I'm getting closer to being a shade. I'm getting closer to being a shadow. Reassert me into humanity. Bring me back out, out of the shadowlands. Right? This is when people die, there's, it, it's like they're getting thinner because they're departing from us. But again, the, the hope that we have in, in death, in, in thinness, is that those in Christ will be given a spiritual body in the resurrection. And spiritual doesn't mean invisible and light and airy. Spiritual means heavier than the stuff you have now. This, the spiritual world, this is C.S. Lewis's description in The Great Divorce, is that the, the dead stuff, when it goes into e- eternity, it actually can't walk on the grass because the grass is, is too sharp for them. They don't have the weight to endure. The, the people of the resurrection life look like giants to them. It's heavier. It's thicker. It's more of what it is than when it was on earth the first time. Okay, so this is Jonah's thing, right? The, Jews are to, the Hebrews are to inherit the earth. That's their promise. They're inheriting the land. Right? It's the righteous that get the land. The righteous get the earth. The wicked are the ones that are taken out of here. Okay, so Jonah is being removed from it. He's in the sea. He's in a fish. That's the most sea you could get. That's the most opposite of land you could have. He's in the belly of a fish in the middle of the ocean. It's shield. It's death. It's far away from what he's been promised, where his life is, where sustenance is. Right? And this is, this, this is the position Jesus puts himself in on the cross. He's surrounded by Gentiles. He's surrounded by Israelites that have turned themselves into Gentiles by rejecting the Messiah. They've become the sea. They've become the belly of a fish. He's being depart. He's departing from the land as he's taking on the curse, departing from the land, going into the belly of the earth, away from the land of the living. Right? He's going to go into Sheol and then take captivity captive out of there. Right? And as he does this, as he descends, he does just what Jonah does. He cries out to the Father with psalms on his lips. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? and ends with, into your hands, I commit my spirit. The, the assumption is that Jesus prays the entirety of Psalm 22. Because Jesus is faithful Israel, dying with God's songs on his lips. And he's resurrected. And so if we have prayer, our prayer life being shaped by the Psalter, if what fills us is the prayers of God, the songs of God for God's people, if that's what shapes you, if that's what, that's what you're eating, if that's what's going into your mouth, into your ears, into your soul, that's what's going to come out when you get close to death. When you have to deal with complexities and situations, when you have to deal with hardship and burdens, what will come out of you then is the word of God. Right? So, like, how do, you, how do you deal with societal upheaval if you don't have Psalm 2 in your back pocket? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Positioned are earth kings. Right? They stand against Yahweh and against Yahweh's anointed. But the Lord sits enthroned in the heavens and laughs. My master scoffs at them. If you don't have that, you're prone to despair. You're, you're prone to dying in, in depression. 
It doesn't mean that the Christian can't have fear when they face death or won't have fear when they face death. But you'll at least have 150 songs in your back pocket to pull out when, you've got, when you don't have your own speech anymore. Right? There's a, a Lutheran minister who he talks about this. He goes to visit a woman who has dementia. She can't remember anything. Doesn't know her family, her husband, her kids. She's forgotten everything. But he goes in with his collar on. She sees him. He starts going through the liturgy, and she immediately picks up her parts. She remembers the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, various psalms that are littered throughout the Lutheran liturgy. Why? Because this stuff has been hidden in her soul, right? The incorruptible things have been attached to her so that even death can't take them away. So that when this 95-year-old woman who's lost her senility... Right, who's lost her mind, who's lost her sense of being, doesn't know her family, does have the word of the Lord. Right? That's actually the eternal thing will actually buttress against death in those situations. So even Jonah in his disobedience and his faithlessness, because he's, because he's Israel here, he's, he's taking on the shape of Israel, he goes into death and he still calls out to the Lord according to the words God's given his people to sing to him. Verses 3 through 4. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounds me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Here Jonah is the anti-Noah. Right? There's, there's all these layers of God's people that Jonah's basically allegorizing here, that he's, he's taking on the shape of. Right? Like Ezekiel does when he lays down on the side of the road naked. All this stuff when he cooks dung over fire. All these things that the prophets do that are weird is because they're, they're actually incarnating history. They're incarnating prophecy. That's what Jonah's doing. Right? He is the opposite of Noah. Noah heard God's word, obeyed God's word, and built an ark for, his, for humanity and creation to be saved in. Right? God's calling Jonah to do the same thing. Go to Nineveh, I'm going to make an ark out of them. I'm going to bring disobedient Israel into exile, and they'll come back to me. I'll save, I'll save creation, actually, through this Assyrian ark I'm going to make by my word. But he doesn't obey. He doesn't hear God's word. And so he's sent into the flood, right? He's actually the one that's immersed because he doesn't hear God's word. He's subdued under the flood. He's put into the waters, buried in the waters, buried in the flood waters, right? The flood has surrounded me. All your waves and your billows have passed over me. To be plunged into the waters below is judgment, not blessing. The blessing waters come from above. That's rain, right? Israel gets their irrigation from the sky, from the blessings above, the waters above. Egypt has to get theirs from the waters below, from the Nile, right? Same thing here. Who, who gets judged? The people that go into the ocean. The people that are plunged into the waves. That's judgment. That's how, that's how God kills Egypt under the Red Sea. He doesn't give them gentle rain showers, right? And so Noah is... No, no. Jonah, Noah, right? Um, Jonah is taking on the opposite of Noah here. Right? This is what would have happened if Noah didn't listen. Israel would have been buried, Okay? Jonah is a kind of atonement for Israel here. Israel's hard-heartedness and disobedience is going to lead them to being surrounded by floodwaters. The Gentiles, the Gentile fish in the ocean is going to swallow them up because like Jonah, they have not responded to God's word. 
And so Jonah has to go for them, go forward for them, and his heart's being broken. His heart's being humbled in the fish. And this is why it's significant that, and as, as evangelicals, we, we do hold that these stories are true. But why it, why it happened in real life ought to matter as well, right? That there are moral truths here. There is, there is a lesson here. That's right. Paul says that. These have been written down for an example to us. But the question is, would it matter if it hadn't happened, right? The parables didn't happen. They, they're still true. So uh, why, does it, why is it significant that this happens to Jonah, not just that we have a story about a guy who went into a fish? And part of it is because God actually works through history on his people, right? He uses humanity to govern the earth. He's given us rule and dominion. We're his image bearers. And the way he changes you is by putting you in scenarios, doing stuff to you in space-time. That's, that's why we, don't, we can't think like medievals because we're not in that situation. The digital age happened to us. That changes who you are. You lose someone in your family. That changes who you are. Sickness changes who you are. Jonah going into a fish fundamentally changes who Jonah is. He can't ever go back to being a guy that wasn't in a fish. Right? His, his posture towards God's word changes because he gets put into a fish. Israel is going to change because they're going to be taken into exile in Assyria. How many times, in, when Jesus comes along, how many times does he have to tell Israelites to stop worshiping Baal on high places? Zero. He never has to bring that up. Never, it never comes up. They've already went into exile to deal with that problem. That was happening all the time in the northern kingdom when Jonah's around. Everybody's praying to Baal. Everybody's sacrificing to pagan gods. All of a sudden, they go into exile. They get buried in a fish. They have to learn humility, have their hearts broken. And all of a sudden, that's not a problem anymore. They've got other problems that Jesus is addressing. But it's not Baal because they're different. It's a different generation. Different stuff happens, right? There's a collective maturing that God's doing for his people. And so Jonah going into the whale isn't just significant for Jonah, but because Jonah's taking on the identity of Israel, just as Jesus does, it's significant for humanity. And we see him start to shift because he starts remembering the temple. His eyes are drawn to the temple, which is the object of faith for the Israelites. That's God's presence on earth. And so he starts to have his heart changed because he's tasting death. That's God's discipline every time, right? Even for a little kid, a spank on the butt, that's a taste of death. This is what happens when you sin. You die, right? That's death. It's, ki- it's a kind of death. It's fellowship's broken. There's pain. There's sorrow. They cry, right? Their heart is softened, Lord willing, right? Because that is, you taste death when you depart from God's word. And so Jonah is put into death, and that starts to soften his heart. He starts to look back to the temple. He starts to long for God's presence again. His desires are changed and realigned because of God's discipline. This is is how our our faith ought to operate, right? That we ought to have our minds and and our eyes shifted to identify God's people, God's presence on earth, as, as the thing that's, that's most beautiful, as the thing that's most valuable. Yet shall I, I again look upon your holy temple. Again, Lord, let me look at your temple. Let me be in your presence again. 
Right? And, that, and now this temple has gone all over the earth. And so when we're in despair, when we're in death, I mean, you see this now. When, with your, the way you're sharing your burdens here in the presence of God's people, in this, in this micro temple in Holden, Maine, that you'd actually say, ah, I've got too much weight on my shoulders. I've got to get to church. I've got to get, I've got to, get to the temple, get to the beautiful people of God. Right? I'm tasting death. The only, the only people that I can call out to are my, are my brothers and sisters. The temple, where God's presence is, where two or three are gathered in his name, he's promised to be there and hear us. Verses 5 and 6. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed up on me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. And so here we have this, the center of this passage where the death begins to turn to resurrection. I went down to the land whose bars closed down on me forever, yet you brought me up. You brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. So even as he's dying, he's still in the fish. He's not been spat out yet. But he knows in this prayer that God's posture towards him is changing, right? There's a way in which God never changed, and there are ways in which God tells us he changes in his disposition, right? Moses prays for the Israelites, and God relents of his anger and doesn't kill all of them. Right? So there's, there's a way in which this is happening here. Jonah's repentant. Jonah longs for God's presence again. Jonah has sorrow in death, and the Lord hears his prayer. And Jonah, and Jonah in faith, says, you, you brought me out of the pit. He hasn't been brought out of the pit yet, but he's trusting that the Lord will bring him out of the pit. This is what we're told in Hebrews about Abraham. When he's bringing Isaac up the mountain, he is planning on killing him, and that is a hard thing to do, but we're told in Hebrews, Abraham had faith that Isaac would be brought back from the dead that Isaac would be resurrected. And that adds a different angle on this thing, right? You're not, for thousands of years, you're not told that explicitly in the Bible until the book of Hebrews is written after Christ, right? Because that light shines back. <clears throat> but all, Jonah knows that his God is a God who brings resurrection life. That's why he hates Sheol. He's like, that's not what I'm hoping for, right? I'm not hoping for disembodied eternity, I'm hoping for eternal state, new heavens, new earth, new creation, better, bigger stuff. And God, now I know God's bringing me out of the pit. Right? The, the songs that God has given Jonah have done the work on Jonah. How many times has this has happened, right? Where you're, you don't want to come to church. You don't want to sing. You don't want to pray to the Lord. Worshiping God is the hardest thing we do because we're sinners. And that's the last thing we want to do is ascribe worth to somebody that's not ourselves. But this is what singing will actually do. Singing will lift your soul up. Right? How, many, how many times have you not had the gumption to come up with words on your own to praise the Lord, but you sing a hymn, you sing a psalm that you know that's in your bones and that changes your disposition. The crutches are actually put up next to you and you're, you remember how to stand again. Right? You, one of the analogies the Bible gives us is the Father is author, the Son is word, and the Spirit as breath, right? And creation as the singers. So in singing, 
right? You're actually embodying the Trinitarian nature of God. Jeremy Begbie talks about this, that that song is one of the closest analogies we have to understanding the three-in-one nature of the Trinity, that you can actually hear a three-part harmony as one thing in your ear, that by hearing, you can actually taste eternity in a different way than you can with any other sense, because that's the nature of music. There's something sacred. Even when we speak, right? I'm not talking like this. I'm using pitch. I'm using rhythm. This is kind of like a bad version of singing, what I'm doing. <clears throat> but it's inevitable. Because you have a Trinitarian God that wrote these songs that are supposed to be like crutches that lift the soul of the sinner up. So that when we're dying, when we're in discipline, when we're in hardship, we'd have something that is beyond our strength. That the Spirit would equip us to cry out to God with his own words with words that we know he answers. That's why Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. Pray like this. Pray like this because this is the stuff that God hears and answers. This is, this is what the Father hears. Doesn't mean you can't come, you know, doesn't mean you can't pray extemporaneously. But it's like Lewis's rule about reading books, right? One old one, one new one. Right? One psalm, one extemporaneous prayer. Start building a vocabulary that's shaped by the Psalter, that's shaped by God's words, that's shaped by the Savior that actually does the same thing on the cross, that cries out the Psalms. Jesus is the Word of God. He could have come up with any prayer he wanted to on the cross. He doesn't have to use the Psalms, those old weird songs that don't even rhyme. But that's what he uses because he is the Word. Right? He glorifies Israel. He glorifies the word of God. He says, you search the scriptures for life, but you don't recognize they point to me. I am the word. That's why he sings Psalm 22 on the cross. Because that's actually the best song that was, it was written for that moment. That's what it's for. Right? Verses 7 through 8. <clears throat> when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. So the Lord revives Jonah. So even, even in his dying state, he's being revived in the, in the belly of the fish. And now he can call out to God. Right? Now he, he can cry out to the Lord and his prayer will actually travel to the temple. His prayers have arrived at the temple, at God's presence, from the belly of the fish. Jonah's recognizing that the idolatry that he frowned upon among the sailors and among Nineveh, that thing that is vain, was present in his own life. That his fear of his people losing their place, their status in the land, because of their hardness, right? This is why he doesn't go to Nineveh, if you remember from last week. He doesn't go to Nineveh, not because he's scared, but because he knows what it means for a prophet to be sent away from Israel. It means that Israel has stopped listening to God, and so God says, all right, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. That'll provoke envy in my people, and they'll humble their hearts and turn back to me. But that's going to require a harder kind of spanking than if they'd listened to me the first time. Right? The Assyrians were known for skinning people and flaying them and displaying them on stakes and posts, and Jonah doesn't want that to happen to his people. And so Jonah is, has a love for broken Israel that's greater than his love 
for God's word. That's a kind of idolatry. And so Jonah's recognizing, oh, my idols are being drowned in this fish right now. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. That the steadfast love of God will be made manifest in the Assyrian exile. It's not the opposite. It's not like, well, God does not love us anymore. That's why we're in exile. He'd let you stay and die in the land if he didn't love you. Because of God's steadfast love, he'll bother to remove them from the place that they've stained with their idolatry. He's going to take the northern tribe out from the place where they've been setting up these high places. He's taking them away from it, right? They're like drug addicts, right? And he's taking them away from their supplier, right? It's not enough just to get them away from the drug. You actually have to, have to start a new society, that's why so many addicts fail is because they're brought to rehab centers and then they're just set free. They just go back to the same people they've been around that enabled them. And so it's God's steadfast love that's saying, look, I'm going to put you in a fish for like 80 years so you can clean up, sober up, love me again so you can live. I'm going to take you away from the things, away from the vices. I'm going to remove vices from your midst so you stop killing yourselves. That's steadfast love. That he would pull them away from idols that are causing them to forsake their hope. Steadfast love. Burying them in the sea. Cascading waves over the idols. Drowning them. Removing their efficacy among the people. And this is exactly what Jesus does to the temple. Right? As, he's, as he's hanging on the cross... He can look down into the temple and the veil is torn. The idolatry that had been set up about the temple, right? That, that, that he was, one of the reasons that he's crucified is because he's, he says no stone will be left on top of one another. Like, you can't say that about the temple, right? And he can because he's, he's destroyed it twice before. In the first, first, in the, uh, first exile and then in the uh, restoration covenant, right? That's what, he, that's what God does. He gets to do that. He breaks old stuff down so that a new thing can reemerge, a new and better thing. And so because they, the Pharisees had attached this, ex, this traditional law and put it next to the word of God, because they kicked the Gentiles out of the outer courts of the temple and inserted money changers instead and not left room for the nations to come in, because Israel had done that, boxed out the nations, Jesus judges them. You've turned this temple into a den of Satan, right? into a den of thieves. This is a place for stealing now. You're supposed to give life. Blessings are supposed to come out of this thing, and you're, you've turned it into a, a stock market with no room for the nations. So guess what? You don't get any temple anymore. And it hasn't been rebuilt for 2,000 years. And it won't ever be rebuilt because this is the temple. This is the object of faith now, the church right? of living stones. We just heard this read uh, from John 2 that Jesus is talking about himself when he says, I'll tear this temple down and rebuild it in three days. And so now every living stone that's grafted onto the body of Christ is part of the temple. There's nothing, there's nothing significant or special about this land in the Middle East anymore. Right? Because you're the ones made out of dust that are sanctified, baptized, and glorified. You're the land. You're the holy land. You're the holy place. Wherever the Spirit of God is. Right? Animating this dust. And so that's the, the shift that has to happen, is that 
the people have to constantly be reminded that the thing, the possession, is God himself, is his word. That's steadfast love. And so when he takes away things that seem good, like your land, your home, your possession, family, friends, when that stuff's taken away, it's not because God hates you. It's because he's trying to change you. He's trying to turn you into someone that looks more like Jesus. And that'll keep happening for centuries, thousands and thousands of years. God will keep growing up humanity by shaving stuff off of us, right? Adding the water of baptism to the dust to make it clay so that he can shape it, mold it into something, and glorify it in the fire to turn it into gold. Verses 9 through 10. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish and vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. So Jonah completes his prayer, and in the completion of the prayer is reestablished. He's put back on the dry land. That's resurrection. Went down into Sheol and came back on the dry land. And he's not put back on the dry land like he was before. Because remember, this thing happened to him now, and he's different. We'll see ways in which Jonah hasn't changed in all the ways he ought to have later in the, in the book. But at this point, he's repentant. And his offerings of praise, his vows that he's vowed, his prayers to the Lord are now pleasing to God. And God has the whale spit him back up. Because he's died prayerfully, because he's died in faith on God's word, he's died resting in the prayers of God's people. He's resurrected. He's brought back to the land. He's, come, he's established back as a faithful prophet, as one that worships God in spirit and in truth. Right? So just, just as Christ leads captivity captive out of Sheol, he goes down into Abraham's bosom, preaches the gospel, and brings them back out of Sheol. Right? Remember in, uh, in Matthew, all the graves are open, and the, people are, the saints of old are walking in the midst. Right? It's because Jesus breaks the Sheol mechanism. So now anyone who dies after Christ... Right? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That wasn't true before. All this old stuff gets broken and changed because Jesus is the faithful prophet. Jesus is the greater Jonah. Jonah goes into the whale, comes out, and he's reestablished on the land. Jesus goes in, and all the saints inherit the earth. That's better. It's a better version of the story. We see that our ultimate privilege here is sacrificial worship. That's, what, that's the telos of humanity, is to be in the presence of God, working and, and praising, right? That the work doesn't go away in resurrection, but it gets glorified. The sting, the, the toil, the futility in labor is taken away, but labor itself is not, right? You'll have jobs like growing two turnips the size of basketballs on Jupiter. That's hard work, but it won't have the sting of death attached to it anymore. It'll be, a, it'll be a function of your worship in the presence of Almighty God in the resurrection. Right? That's, what, that's what these parallels of Jonah 1 and 2 are. Is that they're showing that what God desires is that his people would be changed, that the nations would be changed away from their death, taken out of death, put into life so that they would worship. Because that's the, that's the trueness of humanity. Right? 
some have they'll talk about what makes a human different than any other creature. And some will say, well, it's because we're, we're thinking man. That's what makes us different. But we're different because we're homo adoron. We're worshiping man. We're the, we're the animus. We're the arm in which God works history out. He governs creation through humanity. So wherever God is worshipped, life comes. This is the vision of the temple in Revelation, that out of it will flow rivers of living water that will bring, bring blessings to the earth. In Abraham, all the nations will be blessed. Creation sinks. Why is the world submerged in a flood? Because the lions ate too many deer? No, it's because humans sinned. They forgot God, and they lived according to their own desires. Everything gets broken when humans don't worship. So you, if you want your city fixed, if you want your town fixed, if you want people to stop loving death, you worship God. You teach them to worship God. That's how, you, that's how this stuff gets fixed, right? Politics is the tail of the dog. The mouth of the dog is the prayers of God's people being sung faithfully in accordance with his will and his word. Right? It's worship, culture, politics. That's the proper order. That's how it's going to function. That's the only way significant renewal ever happens. That's the way Maine will be changed when his people worship him. And so we see this in Jonah 1 that there's this call to distress in the storm and then Jonah 2, Jonah's put into the belly, right? So the Gentiles actually come first here. They're the ones calling out for help. Now Jonah's calling out for help. Jonah 1, you've got uh, God preserves them by their prayer, Right? God preserves him by Jonah being thrown into the fish. Jonah praying from the fish preserves him. And at the end, they both offer vows. They both offer sacrifice. They both offer prayer. But what God does here is he gives a microcosm of what he's going to do with Assyria. God raises up these Gentile sailors to actually shame Jonah, provoke Jonah to jealousy, so when Jonah's in the fish, he turns back to God. Oh, you've done this for sailors that never even knew you. They heard one sentence from me and repented and turned to the true living God. I, I have been wrong. I've been hard-hearted. So Jonah's broken heart comes to him in death, in discipline. The hand of the Lord upon him turns his heart in the fish to be brought back to God's presence, to be put back on the land, taken out of the sea, out of Sheol. Jonah's prayers are rich and fitting because he's been taught to pray from the Lord. We can, we can deal with enemies. We can deal with sins. We can confess rightly and fully and completely if we have the Psalms on our tongues. Sacrifices you did not desire, but a humble and a contrite heart. Psalm 51, right? If you've got stuff like that, if that's your ammunition for, for prayer, you can die well. You can suffer well. You can intercede for your state, for your people, for your church, for your family with fullness. Our habits must be word-oriented so we can have a deep well to call upon. Right? Our imagination has to be shifted. What we find beautiful, lovely, true, good has to be brought into accordance with the Word of God. We don't want to be spiritual diabetics, right? 
We just need constant infusions of junk food to give us joy. You want to, you want to be able to eat good, eat well. What, what could you chew on for a week and be satisfied? Soul food is different, right? It'll stick to your bones. It'll get you through seasons of, of lack, seasons of death. Our creativity has to be resurrected from the grave. One of the reasons there's a thinness in a... I'm going to punch a sacred cow. One of the reasons there's thinness in a lot of contemporary Christian music is because we've forgotten the Psalms. We don't know how to write music anymore. It's like, stop writing stuff until every musician's memorized all 150 Psalms. Then he can write a new song. That's, that's my new rule. So. <laughs> but if we want to be saints that die like Jesus, trusting the Father, calling out to the Father, being able to faithfully commit our souls to the Father in the face of death, you've got to know his word. You've got to know what he says about dying, what he says about his kids, what he says about hardship. That's how you die faithfully. Abide in Christ and imbibe his words with, that would shape our speech and our thoughts and our desires. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Holy Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, give us faithfulness. Give us a desire to know you, to be fed by you. Equip your saints in Jesus' name. Amen.